this works. I'm grateful for this invitation. I'm very honored to be here because we do live in dark times. You know, we think that we are still in the 70s, 80s where it was possible to say anything and so on because, of course, it had no effect. It's not like that, really. Just let me give you one small hint. You mentioned two things about me. Contrib contributor in New York Times, and I may add in The Guardian, and my book, Trouble in Paradise, with the subtitle, uh, Communism After the End of History. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, the first two things are no longer true. From both, I'm now totally excluded. For example, in Guardian, unfortunately, which was one of the few places in big British press where it was possible to say a little bit more, there was now a kind of a left-centrist, or rather liberal coup d'etat. Oh my God. the wrong uh, subtitle, they said, we know we are with you, but maybe it's not good to have the name communism in the subtitle, so check it up. I had to change it into from the end of history to the end of uh, capitalism, no? But that incident that happened here works wonderfully to, uh, to yes, and I am grateful to Liana, whose husband, Ed Kadava, is also, not only her, my very good friend, and my God, I cannot resist saying this, if this was supposed to be uh, humiliating aggressivity, ask her and Ed what they have to suffer from me. Like, you know, Ed Kadava, I cannot resist corpse, I always call her Co corpse fucker or whatever, you know, like, please, please, like, is this the spirit of New York? You cannot even insult people, no. Okay, let me go, no, quite seriously, so you see, it's good to see where even two very modest attempts to say something critical, how, no, it's not true that we live in a permissive society where you can say anything and so on, no, let me give you another example. Even in sexuality, allegedly, we live in times where you know who, who needs psychoanalysis, there are no longer repressions, you can do anything you want. Yes, but did you notice how the key insight of Freud, which is infantile sexuality, is today completely obliterated. Children return 
with a vengeance as innocent beings, which is why pedophilia is now uh, elevated into the ultimate crime and so on. And uh, as for uh, the Charlie Hebdo, Charlie Hebdo killings in Paris, of course, I must say, I unambiguously condemn them. I'm not playing any of those games which I find disgusting, left liberal games of showing understanding, you know, like, yes, but we should not forget that uh, Arabs were exposed to colonialist oppression and so on and so on. Well, sorry, in this way you can justify anything you want. In this sense, I'm sorry to tell you, it's even true, Hitler was an anti-imperialist. He, Nazi propaganda regularly used the term imperialism, like Anglo-American imperialism, and so on and so on. So, again, <coughs> sorry, this will not go. Also, I think this prohibition to criticize Arabs in the sense that, oh, whatever you say, it's immediately Islamophobia, and so on. I'm opposed to this, not because I'm against. Arabs, my God, I'm part of BDS movement, boycott Israel. But at the same time, one should tell the entire truth. For example, first I thought this is a Western propaganda. Then a good friend of mine uh, from Egypt sent me material proofs. No, there is widespread anti-Semitism, the real one, not just anti-Zionism in, uh, in Egypt. For example, do you know that which was the most popular so I was told by this guy, he sent me even on DVD some parts, uh, TV series in Egypt. Yes, you guessed it, if you did. Uh, Protocols of Zion, everything staged, taken very seriously, and so on and so on. So I don't accept the logic, yes, but we should understand it, they are so screwed up by Zionists. We patronize them in this way. And this patronizing is the most perverted and refined form form of racism. As my friend from South Africa told me apropos of this game, you know, if we cannot any longer play the white man's burden, like it's our duty to civilize others, now there is a new form of white man's burden. Whenever something horrible happens around the world, it has to be, oh, somehow we are responsible for it, if not directly, you know, it's colonialism and so on and so on. And I find this ridiculous. A friend of South Africa once exploded and told me, you know, this is the worst thing. You even don't give us the basic human right to be truly evil, you know. We are like children. If we do something evil, Oh, it must be your fault. No, we are too stupid, not able to be evil. <laughs> this is why one of my most enlightening talks was when I was years ago in Missoula, Montana, and some Indians, or as you call them, uh, Native Americans, incidentally, all my Indian friends hate this term. They told me, Native Americans, what you and you are cultural Americans, you know, like nature culture, or they absolutely, at least those that I know, prefer being called Indians. You know why? You know my job. They told me, at least in this way, our, my name, our name is a monument to white man's stupidity, you know. <laughs> they thought they come to India and so on. And okay, one of my Indian friends told me he wrote a treatise where he proves it's so emancipatory how 
Now we Indians burned more forests and killed more buffaloes than all you white people together. Like, <laughs> no, we are not those, you know, this, this is for me pure racism. When you say, uh, we white imperialists treat nature as an object of technological orientation, but look at the native people here who, they respect nature as their mother, partner, before they dig a mine, they ask the, the, the mountain for permission to do it and all the bullshit and so on. <laughs> this is so humiliating, so patronizing, that you want to keep them in their more authentic mode of being. I know where this was already done. In South Africa before, uh, when apartheid was still on, you know, I did something really evil that not many people do. I tried to read some of their treatises of the apartheid regime, how they justified apartheid. And it's very interesting. It's not, of course, open. You cannot say these blacks are less, blah, blah. No, it's something like if we simply uh, invite blacks to join our Western technological civilization, imagine at those... Uh, 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 Bushman, Hottentots, with their wonderful ancient wisdom. All that would be lost in our cheap commercialized civilization. So I think, no, the beginning of post-colonialism is a sincere invitation to others. Please, you are free to join our corruption, my God, you know. <laughs> become consumerists and so on and so on. I, uh, there is so much falsity at, at work here. So, now, I got too much into it, since I am in introduction, since I am nonetheless some kind of a philosopher, if you bear with me, you know, with philosophers you don't go directly to the point, Greece. <laughs> you have to begin up there in the clouds, universe, and then slowly, slowly, and then just at the end you say, haha, Greece, here we are. But I mean that. No, but you know why? Not just for uh, imitating in a kind of a, uh, 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 kind of a, in a kind of a, a self-satire, making fun of myself, imitating what a theoretician should be. But because I think Greece is not just a particular problem of a particular country down there in the south of Europe, it is in some very naive psychoanalytical sense a symptom. A symptom in the sense of the point where general antagonisms explode are condensed in a, some concentrated image. So let me, I hope you will not find this too boring, let me begin with a very general point. How does power, legal power, function today? Uh, I really mean this, what I will say now, because then I will get lost in just listening to myself. This is not a formal invitation, but really, like, if anything, if there is anything that you find stupid, unclear, and so on, just cut me short. That's the only way to stop me, <laughs> talking, no? Okay, now, now let's go for serious. Uh, traditional power relies on what, in psychoanalytic jargon, we call symbolic castration. What is this? Castration is the gap between what I immediately am and the symbolic mandate which confers on me my eventual authority. 
So, far from being the opposite of power, castration is synonymous with power. It is that which confers power on me. For example, take uh, a king, as Marx already put it more than a century ago. A king is not a king, we don't treat someone as a king because he is a king in, in itself, but he is, appears as a king with a proper charisma because we treat him as one. And this, his power is, uh, of course, condensed in his insignia. You know, the scepter, crown, whatever. You have an ordinary clerk. The moment he puts this on, it's as if he is transubstantiated, you know. Or, as you say, you take a corrupted nobody, he dresses up as a judge, and, you know, the law speaks through him. It doesn't matter if he is an ordinary corrupted uh, person. Uh, so, uh, this is for Lacan phallic signifier. It's not, it's precisely something decentered, something which you never own, and castration is this, Lacanian name for this gap. You have authority, but it's never you in your immediate being. It's conferred on you from outside contingently. However, this gap between the symbolic title, insignia, and the miserable reality of the individual who bears this title, it tends to function today in a radically different way. It underwent a weird reversal, noted by Alain Badiou, apropos Jean Genet's wonderful play, Balcon, quote from Badiou, from a book, short book which was recently translated called Pornography of Power. Oh, sorry, Pornography of the Present. Quote, we encounter here an imaginary feature of democracy. Democracy means precisely that there are no longer costumes, costumes in the sense of insignia of power. Inequality no longer wears a costume or a dress. There are dramatic, gigantic inequalities, but their laicization leaves them without a costume." End of quote. On a simple descriptive level, this means that in a democratic egalitarian society, masters, those who exert power over others, and of course masters are still here, perhaps even more than ever, masters no longer have to wear insignia or costumes that would performatively constitute them as bearers of power. They can dress and act naturally, like everybody else, renouncing all dignity. The message of the way they dress and act is, see, we are common people like you, with all weaknesses, fears, limitations, we are nothing special. In short, their castration is no longer covered up by the splendor of their insignia, but is in a way openly displayed. Like, you cannot criticize today's master, look, that jerk, he pretends to be, I don't know, uh, a possessor of some charisma, but he's just an ordinary guy like ourselves. Today's masters are admitting this openly, but this so-called honest operation should in no way deceive us. For all their common appearance, they, today's masters, continue to assert their full power perhaps even more directly than the traditional master. A quote from my good friend, <coughs> member of my Slovene Lacanian group, Alenka Zupancic, quote, 
let the image be castrated, the image, which means the public appearance of a master, be castrated in all possible ways, while I can do more or less whatever I want, in a strange reversal of the classic logic of castration as a means to access symbolic power, we are dealing here with the castration of the symbolic public image as a means to execute and perpetuate limitless power." End of quote. So, castration, this time in the sense of the open display of weakness, thus becomes part of the public image, but not in the simple and straight sense that it simply masks the actual exercise of ruthless power. The point is rather that this mask of castration is the very means, instrument, mode, of how power is exercised. The mystification is here redoubled. Beneath the gesture of demystification, you see I drop all masks and costumes, I'm an ordinary guy like you, the exercise of power, which is a symbolic fact, not a real property of its agent, remains intact. So when confronted with a boss who talks and acts as an ordinary man, his subordinate would thus be fully justified in addressing him with a paraphrase of the well-known Marx Brothers joke. You know, you don't, you know, this guy looks as an idiot, acts as an idiot, but this shouldn't deceive you, this guy is an idiot. <laughs> Why are you talking and acting as an ordinary man when you really are? just an ordinary man. The paradox is that if the agent of power were to put on the mask of insignia, this would not increase his power, but undermine it, making it ridiculously pathetic. The matrix of fetishist disavowal, the Sabine Mekomet, I know very well, but is given here a specific twist. It is no longer just I know very well that you are an ordinary, weak guy like me, but I still accept you as a master. It is rather something like, I know very well you are a miserable, weak guy like me, and for that very reason, I can continue to obey, to follow you like my master. So, you see the point, knowledge is here not an obstacle to be suspended but a positive condition of the functioning of what is, it discloses in its gesture of demystification. The mystification persists, not in spite of its denunciation, but through it, because of it. This paradox characterizes cynicism as the hegemonic form of today's ideology. In it, the fetishist denial acquires a new form. It is no longer the fetish, the belief which persists in our actual practice in spite of our knowledge. Like, I know very well, for example, that this guy there, the judge, is a miserable, corrupted idiot, but nonetheless, there is something in him because the law speaks through him. Uh, 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 like, again, yes, but in today's cynicism, the disavowal of knowledge is not embodied in a fetish object, like insignia of power. It's knowledge itself which directly functions as a fetish. What does this mean? 
Uh, it's precisely knowledge itself, but this will sound complex, but I will immediately make it clear through some examples, which prevents us assuming, fully assuming knowledge. For example, it is true that we didn't really learn anything new from Snowden or from Chelsea Manning. Basically, of course, we learned many details, but let's be frank. Vaguely, we suspected it. Frankly, I was even more of a pessimist. I thought they are no more. Uh, but it is one thing to know it in general, and another thing to really subjectively assume it. It's a little bit like, you know, a tasteless example, I admit it, if you are a liberal husband, but the same goes for the wife. Uh, it is one thing to generally know that your wife is sleeping with other men. But you know, things change when you get a concrete picture or whatever, and then usually you adopt this fetishist split. Yes, I'm liberal, open, why not? But you know what's the usual reaction? I saw it with many of my friends when they had this experience. <laughs> then some detail then bothers you. I'm open, of course. Women are free, they have the right to sleep with whoever they want. But why did she have on that image to put her finger like that up or whatever? You, know, you, you focus on, a, on some tiny feature which is precisely what Lacan calls plus de jouir, the surplus uh, enjoyment. And this is why the most perfidious critique of the Wikileaks leaks accusation is to say, of course we are not naive, we already knew or, or suspected what WikiLeaks disclosed. Do you really think we are so stupid that we didn't know it all along? So why all the fuss about it? You see how this operation cheats. Of course we knew it. But this very knowledge, oh yes I know it, prevented us from effectively assuming the consequences of what. You know, this is the psychoanalytic distinction between knowing something from a distance as an objective fact and really assuming this knowledge. And one of the functions of fetish today is precisely to prevent this full assumption of it. Like, a fetishist is not an idiot who dreams about fetishes or whatever. Fetishists are the ultimate cynics. They know, pretend to, they know everything. Every fetishist will admit to you immediately that uh, it's, listen, forget about ideologies, ideas. It's all about power, money, sex, pleasures, whatever. But there is always a but. And that's his, or her, usually his, because for clinical reasons, one can demonstrate that fetishist position is more, much more uh, masculine. But, but they always have then some small fetish, something which precisely prevents them to fully assume what they pretend to know, to, as we say, really know it. For example, I wrote a lot about this in my books. One of the examples would have been how if you take modern digital capitalists, uh, so-called, uh, who are fully in these uh, virtual operations and so on, uh, engaging this, usually one of the most 
popular fetishism among them is what I ironically refer to as Western Buddhism. You know, like they like to tell themselves, listen, I'm well aware that money isn't really what matters, you know. Incidentally, I totally agree with this with one supplement. You must have enough money <laughs> to be able to say this, no? <laughs> okay, but what I mean is that, you know, they say, oh, what is this, my billions, or at least millions? This is just some virtual play. It means really nothing. What happens is my inner wisdom, enlightenment, and so on. You see, that's his fetish. This is why already, immediately after World War I, in Japan already, they were way ahead of us here in the West, they began to use Zen Buddhism for training capitalists. Because they got it that the only way to survive this authentic capitalist rhythm is not to take it existentially too seriously. You know, you need, uh, it, it, it's interesting how my Indian friends, especially a very good crystal analyst, Saro Igiri, uh, told me how this is how in today's India, reference to traditional wisdom, all that Hindu gods and traditional values functions. It's not that it's an obstacle to actual effective functioning of capital. No, it makes you function even better. He told me that she discovered in some analysis, sorry, uh, uh, in some uh, concrete explorations by some sociologists, they demonstrated how the most efficient, more postmodern virtual capitalists just sitting behind computers, usually they are they are not enlightened and laugh upon ordinary people who you still burn the candle to that fucking goddess every evening, whatever. No, they are the worst in this. You know, that's the paradox. During the day, you do all the virtual speculations with futures, whatever. Then you return home, you, you offer something to your goddess or whatever, up and down. That's how, that's how it functions, which is why cynics are always wrong in politics. I think, let's take the ultimate cynicist, Henry Kissinger. He was absolutely, do people remember, if you have a little bit of, if you are old enough to remember, how he was always, almost always wrong. Like, he didn't believe that as a cynicist, that, that even wrong from the leftist point, he simply didn't believe that communism can really disintegrate. Here, I must say this with, Peter expression on my face that Reagan knew much more here. <laughs> because Ronald Reagan, uh, at least, uh, at least, uh, you know what he somehow was aware of? That uh, appearances matter. Never underestimate appearances. Appearances are never only appearances. Here, cynics underestimate the power of appearances. I remember, you know, which was the greatest moment of stupidity from American conservative standpoint. You remember how, from American imperialist standpoint, and I understand conservatives criticizing him, Kissinger blew it up in Vietnam and so on. All those stupid negotiations, the North took it over. Or even, do you remember, if you are old enough, how at the very end of Gorbachev's rule, that was that last attempt coup d'etat. I remember immediately, hours after, Kissinger went on TV saying something like, 
that's the new reality, Gorbachev went too far, we have to accept it, and so on. Two days later, Yeltsin did strike back. That's the, again, that's the tragedy, that's the tragedy of cynics. Uh, so, again, uh, uh, that's one big lesson today in this predominant mode of cynicism. But let's go on. Many, many, unfortunately for you, maybe things to say. So, next question. We have this cynical individual with a fetishist denial, you know. He can do or she whatever he, she wants, but because he knows it's not really about that. It's all my enlightenment and so on. It doesn't really matter. What type of subjectivity fits this constellation? Uh, I think that the best point of reference here would have been what is more and more, as we know, becoming not just marginal, but almost gradually the predominant <coughs> form of work in our societies, the we also use this term, like we do in Europe here, precarious work. You know, you don't get a long-term contract, and so on and so on. I think this is a wonderful, not only actual economic invention, but also ideological invention. Why? Precarious work deprives you, if you are a worker, of a whole series of rights which still recently were taken as self-evident in any country which perceived itself as a welfare state. Now, workers have to take care themselves of their health insurance and retirement options. There is no paid holiday, leave, future becomes more uncertain. Precarious work generates an antagonism within the working class between permanently employed and precarious workers. For example, trade unions often tend to privileged permanent workers. And as an old leftist, uh, I thought to what extent it's the same with you here in the US, but in my country and some others in Europe, I even went so far and was immediately proclaimed a traitor that I opposed some strikes. Not that I'm against them, but you know, at least I know about Slovenia, my small city country, that to be able to strike is already an extreme privilege. Who can take the risk and strike in my country. Those who are mostly employed by state and have there a secure permanent job. Policemen, teachers, doctors, judges, and so on. They can strike often with catastrophic consequences. In the sense that, for example, our hospitals are now on the edge of ruin because they strike, the government gets into panic, raises their salary, and it takes it from the money which was meant to, which was to be spent to buy new, 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 new medical apparatuses and so on. So we are here lagging much more behind than in communist times. <laughs> so, what, uh, uh, in, typically in Slovenia, this, the strikes of the privileged were oh, the only strikes. There were real catastrophes, like some uh, tens of thousands of textile workers lost their job. <coughs> My God, they, they, they couldn't even imagine to strike. Because, you know, how could they strike? Because they would be immediately told, you want to strike? Fine, go. I mean, let's immediately fired and so on. Totally different logic. So, uh, what, uh, 
Uh, one would have expected that this strengthened exploitation will also strengthen workers' resistance. But, paradoxically, it renders resistance even more difficult. And the main reason for this is, I think, ideological. Now comes ideology. Precarious work is presented, and up to a point, it's even effectively experienced, as a new form of freedom. You know, the ruling ideology can answer you at every point. You are no longer just a cog in a complete enterprise, but, as they say, an entrepreneur of the self, a boss of yourself who can freely manage your employment and so on. So again, you've complained, I don't have permanent health care of retirement plan. They say, but don't you see, this is a new freedom of choice that you have. You can choose even either to spend more now, even that, and that, or I cannot even get a long-term permanent employment. They tell you, almost comically imitating Judith Butler, but you see, you can performatively reconstruct yourself every two years, new freedom to redefine yourself, and so on, and so on. You see, that, that to explore different aspects of your creative potentials, and so on, and so on. Uh, this is what, this is how ideology works in everyday life. You see that the very condition of your strengthened exploitation, you experience it as more freedom. But there is a catch here. Freedom, of course, is experienced here as a freedom of choice. And I always repeat this point, that let me ask you a naive question. The Leninist question. You claim probably that you are free, and I'm not mocking it. Don't be afraid. I'm not the stupid old Stalinist who will tell you your freedom is just a formal freedom. You know, because then what Stalinism does, the Stalinist logic is your freedom is in any case just a former freedom, so it doesn't matter if we take it from you, <laughs> because we know better than you what's good for you. No, no, no. I'm a good Marxist here. Marx was always aware Forum matters. You know, when you have a gap between forum and its actual content, it's not simply forum is just an illusion, a mask. Precisely as illusion, it exerts its own power. The example that I always use. Think about uh, human rights. We know the traditional Marxist critique. They appear to be universal, but in reality they were just rights of the, the... In a subtle way, they somehow privileged whom? White males of a certain uh, uh, wealth and so on and so on. It's true, but it's false to say, okay, so they are just formal rights, who cares? You know the history. They began like this. And it's wonderful to see liberalist classics from late 17th already and throughout 18th century, how they perform this trick. Usually this trick is performed through a tautology. Human rights are the rights of all pe human pe people. They, they usually just act insofar as they are really reasonable beings. And then you begin. Women are too <coughs> exposed to sensible impressions. They cannot really think, so not. Blacks cannot really think as free beings, and so on. But here is the wonder. <coughs> okay, human rights were at the beginning just formal rights, privileging certain class, and so on. 
But this didn't prevent them from acquiring their own dynamics, no? Like women, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft. She said, no, wait a minute. You talk about universal rights, why not us women? And the most noble event, Haiti Black Slave Revolution. Why not us blacks? And so on and so on. So again, I'm not mocking human, uh, uh, this freedom of choice. It does matter. But it's not enough. In what sense? Again, if somebody were to ask you, are you free, you would probably say yes. Then, if I ask you a further this vicious Leninist question, but freedom of whom, <coughs> to do what, and so on, you know, you would probably say, well, I have a freedom of choice. I can have sex in any way I want. I can, I don't know, I can eat what I want. I can read what I want. I can say, more or less, my opinion publicly, what I want. I can choose a work that I want. Haha, okay, if you get it, and so on. But I think that our paradox, and here I've written about it, so it'll be very short, here, I think, this ongoing secret negotiations, economic negotiations, like the so-called TAISA, Trade International Agreement, whatever, are extremely important. You know, we all of a sudden discovered that secretly agreements are prepared which coordinate, fix in advance so many details of our commerce and also exchange of uh, information and so on and so on, that they severely limit even the right of legally elected governments to change things. So that's our paradox. On the one hand, personally, you are free. On the other hand, the conditions of this freedom, the social texture, which provides you with certain choices, effectively, and not others, this is becoming more and more impenetrable to us. And it's even more and more openly admitted. In my last book, I quote, for example, uh, that analysis by, it was done in Financial Times, a comment apropos Syriza, where some economists openly said, the greatest, most serious problem in Europe are the voters. In other words, we all know what to do, just people don't get it. And then, Van Titiens, Robert Titiens, an ex-boss of Deutsche Bank, went a step further and said that a wise politician should prefer the ongoing referendum of stock markets to these arbitrary elections and so on. And I like this because it looks almost as an argument for more democracy, you know. People vote every four years, they are confused. But what is a stock market then a continuous referendum, you know? <laughs> like stocks go up, down, that's the true democracy, the market and so on. So what I'm saying is this, you see this, how, yes, we are free. It's good that we are free, but the basic coordinates of this freedom are, again, more and more fixed without us being aware what, <coughs> what decisions are being taken. For example, concerning this TAISA agreement, it was now disclosed that when the, the text proposed text is debated, 
become public, it said there no, it no, not only the disagreements are to be done in secrecy, but that even when, if Taisa will be accepted, it should remain secret for five years. So, uh, for me at least, again, uh, democracy should mean not only the freedom of choice, but also, and here Syriza enters the first glimpse of Syriza, <laughs> the freedom to collectively restructure, redefine, however we call it, this very social texture which ultimately decides what actual choices we do have. If you, we don't have the space for this, as it were, collective act, which again redefines the field of choices, then our freedom is a very limited one. What do I mean by this? I will use a very vicious metaphor. Let's imagine a single mother with two small children. Let's call her, for obvious reasons, Sophie, you know, Sophie's choice. She wants the best for her children, but lacking money, she has to make some hard choices. She can send only one of the two children to a good school. So which one will she choose? Should she organize a nice summer holiday for them? Or buy each of them a new computer? Or should she rather provide better health care for them? Although her choice is not as tough as Sophie's choice from the novel or the movie, Mary Streep's choice, uh, 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 it runs along the same lines. And I would personally absolutely prefer to live in a society where I would be brutally deprived of this freedom of choice. Uh, so, that's our, okay, I will nonetheless cut it short, this is our uh, situation, and I think that it is against this background that uh, we should analyze our predicament. Again, this explosion of personal human freedoms, which, again, this is a very important thing. I don't mock them. Of course, I want to decide what I do, uh, what books I read, where do I travel, what's my sexual orientation, and so on, of course. But the problem is, again, this more about changing, eventually, the very social structure. And I claim this is becoming more and more <coughs> difficult, difficult even to imagine. Whenever, this is why the famous phrase in Europe, but you have it also here, it was recently evoked apropos Greece by Angela Merkel, is uh, Tina. There is no alternative, you know. Like, it's, it's interesting how, again, that's the dialectical coincidence of opposite, how the excess of personal freedoms is, always appears against the background of total impenetrability of the global structure of our societies. And of course, the idea is to tell you, but don't you see that precisely this structure is the only one in which your personal freedoms can uh, exist, and so on and so on. And there is a serious problem here. Let me restate, repeat, whatever. God calling, no, I'm wrong, the structure is not like <laughs> that. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, uh, you see, that's 
And effectively, and again, I'm coming back to Syriza, the situation is so complex that we can maybe even effectively say that, that, uh, that uh, it's not, what is utopian today is not just a dream of some total revolutionary change, but that, as Alberto Toscano recently put it, maybe our greatest utopia is reformism, you know, in the sense of let's just change that law and so on. That's for me at least has already developed the problem with Thomas uh, Piketty. He did a great job and so on, but I think that what he proposes in his book is strictly a utopia, although it's very modest. To cut a long story short, his idea is that, nonetheless, he concedes this, capitalism is the only thing that really work, works from the standpoint of efficient production. So he wants the system, capitalist, basically the way it is, just with much higher taxes for the rich, which will enable more redistribution and so on and so on. Why is this a utopia? I cannot go into details now. Because he is well aware, he's not an idiot, that in today's global market you can only do this worldwide. You cannot do it just in some country. But here we come to the first utopian point. If we were in a position to do this, we, we would have to have already a kind of a global world power strong enough to overrun the interest of capital. But then we have already won when we have this. You know what I mean? His solution works. He doesn't say us how to win, but we are already up, we already do it. The problem is to create conditions that you can even imagine such a worldwide radical measure. Or to put it in another way, capitalism is nonetheless a totality in the sense that you cannot simply change some detail, for example, much higher taxes, and nonetheless keep the entire structure intact. Because, yes, you can do this. Let's say in some country a leftist government does this. But then you will sooner or later discover that you will have to do many more things just to sustain uh, this measure. Now, what am I saying here? Again, now you will say, but doesn't this precisely relate to Syriza? Aren't they utopians in this sense? No, I will tell you why not, I think. Because nonetheless, the only realist politics today for me is precisely and in a very specific way in each country to find that's how intelligent politics should work today. And the more modest the proposal appears, all the better. In every situation, I claim, you have, I call them symptomal points, something which is even generally accepted as something worthy, which should be done, but nonetheless, in a specific situation, you cannot do it. For example, this is why I also am critical about uh, Barack Obama, but I'm sometimes a little bit sick of the leftist criticism of him. I mean, what did you expect, that Obama will introduce socialism here? <laughs> no, he did a couple of good things, and maybe even more important, he did not do a couple of bad things. 
like intervening in Syria, bombing Iran, whatever. So uh, I'm talking, of course, about universal health care. It's not up to me to judge to what extent Obamacare is a success or not. I accept that it's very limited. But admit it, the very fact of how Republicans attack him, dragging him to Supreme Court, means that he did touch an extremely sensitive point of the ruling ideological consensus. And you see, this is why I like this measure. Because proposal, uh, universal health care. Uh, uh, because, uh, where am I in male chauvinist society? A, a lady has to go, so that's okay. This is, this is not, don't you have a politically correct term for privileging the old? Ageism <laughs> or what? Okay, okay, sorry, let's go on. So, you see, nobody can say universal health care is, I don't know, uh, uh, communism or what. You have it in Canada, you have it in almost all of European countries. But if you just insist on it here, it causes a struggle and so on. And it's the same, for example, uh, in some, although I know how multiculturalism is a suspicious thing, but in some countries, like in today's Turkey, with the still oppression of Kurds, denial of Armenian genocide and so on, just to insist on simple multiculturalism is an extremely radical measure and so on. And here we come to the first positive point about Syriza. I know Varoufakis. I'm really friendly with him. By really friendly, you may have guessed from the obscene beginning of my talk, it means that I, all the time when we meet, he is the butt, the target of my most vulgar jokes. You can imagine. <laughs> For example, I once told him, your wife's name must be Varu. Is this a Greek name? He said, no, why? I told him, you probably belong to some tribe where you didn't yet reach the patriarchal level, so a man is named, his family name is following like Varu Fakis. You know, like Yanis, the guy who fucks Varu. You know? Like, you know what I mean? Like, for example, in this society, Barack Obama would have been Barack Michel Fakis, you know. That's how friendly I'm with kids. But seriously, you know what strikes me in this uh, pogrom against him in European press, where they present him as some madman, extremist, and so on? Look, look at what he demands from Europe, from Brussels bureaucracy. Look at it. Are you aware that these are measures which, 40, 50 years ago, would have been not even radical social democratic measures, but, I mean, I'm even tempted to say, if you look what he was doing, Richard Nixon, I mean, if uh, Varoufakis is a radical leftist, then Richard Nixon was a radical leftist. You know what I mean? What, isn't this sad, where we are today? What was 40, 50 years ago? an extremely modest social democracy, not what they were doing in Sweden and so on. If you just do this today, you are proclaimed a leftist, radical leftist, lunatic, and so on and so on. So again, they are doing the right thing. This is, I think, one of the, not the only one. In every situation you have to do it maybe in a different way. But this is what intelligent left can do today.
I claim. Not, oh, radical revolution, we want it. I mean, what? I have nothing against the radical revolution. I just claim that if in certain specific situations you ask for a radical revolution, it basically means that you guarantee that nothing will change. And I hate this pseudo-radical left who you have now then, you find them in Greece, in Western Europe, who already laugh at Syriza, oh, social democratic turn, they don't mean it seriously. Well, they don't mean it seriously, but I'm sorry, they did throw all of Europe into a panic. It's in an emergency state and so on. While in, you, in Greece, correct me if I'm wrong, you do have a political force which waits for the radical revolution. How do you call it? The communist... Yeah, yeah, Kukue, yeah, the uh, communist party, uh, which is still uh, uh, basically, I was told, correct me if I'm wrong, even a Stalinist one. For them, the traitor is not uh, Gorbachev, but Khrushchev even, you know. They still reprint Stalin's works and so on. But, I was told, they hate so much the other left that often in Parliament they were voting together with New Democracy and so on. You know, this comfortable, radical position, no, let's wait for the authentic revolution, which just guarantees that nothing will change. So if you ask me, let's imagine that I would be uh, the, the, the manager of some secret CIA or whatever fund, that I would have to corrupt political forces to guarantee that nothing will change effectively. I would have given money to parties like that or groups, you know, which immediately were never... Now I know there may be, there are limits, illusions in what Syriza is doing, but what matters now is to, how should I put it, to start the process, to get things moving. And Theresa did this, and I think we should be here ruthless, all compromises to be made. For example, I was told by the corpse whom you are, as I said before, I was told that there was recently, even on Fox News, a debate where they were sympathetic to Syriza a little bit. I really think that uh, basically this is the tragedy of Europe. Syriza is and that's the irony, that in order to do this, you must be extremely subversive. What Syriza is trying to do is basically to save the European dream of a welfare state capitalism. No, now, instead of saying, but you see, they just want to save capitalism, I think it's a very important pedagogical process to go through this. And then we'll see, can it be done or not? Uh, because. Uh, what then happens if there is no opening in this direction? Now comes the dark part uh, of my talk. You know, what I'm really afraid of is that things that you have here now, uh, Ferguson and other demonstrations of the blacks, but not only of blacks, or what happened even more violently a couple of years ago, maybe you remember it, in suburbs of Paris, thousands of cars burning and so on. This is something that should worry us extremely. No, here in Ferguson and so on, I know you had precise demands, justice, like in other words, police force here in the United States, it's true, 
it's getting more and more militarized. Direct summer that are now even supplied by military guns and so on. But there are simply no, you know, in some slums, they are almost experienced. A black guy who is my friend uh, told me this, that they are experienced almost as Israeli occupying force on the West Bank, you know. You no longer perceive them as one of us protecting us for crime, but as a kind of a, a occupying force. And of course, when there is no way out, you do what? You do what? Walter Benjamin called with this wonderful term divine violence. Mm. Now, here I oppose those bourgeois post-colonial guys who officially admire Benjamin, but of course they are scared like shit of any real radical change. So, from Homi Baba on, I noticed they all try to domesticate Benjamin. No, he didn't really mean violence, divine violence, some sublime inner change and so on. No, sorry. Now a friend who is editing a new version of some diaries of Benjamin told me that they found some fragments which are, for me, wonderful. He said that divine violence is simply that no trial we observe that you should slaughter slaughter them like you slaughter cows in a slaughterhouse and so on. So he meant something very brutal, but here comes my more precise analysis. I don't think he meant something... Uh, 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 I don't think he meant something which is even good in a naive sense. Let's take it that a great people feel a great injustice, but they don't trust the politics, they don't see the possibility. So, as Benjamin put it, when divine violence explodes, it's not violence as means, instrument for a certain aim, it's just monstration. You just display your anger without any direct instrumentality. That's how they forget this. Benjamin distinguishes mythic and, and divine violence. Mythic violence is an instrument to reestablish the rule of law and so on. Divine violence is this pure, in a way, even impotent explosion of fury. And you know, that's, I think, what is, if I may now slowly approach the conclusion, that's what runs ahead. I mean, if that's what really worries me, if the system will go on, now, people claim, but you are utopian, there will not be any revolution. I also fear that there will not be. What really worries me is that things will really change if nothing will change. That is to say, if the ongoing system will just drag on. Well, even Hollywood knows where we are going. Did you notice how many blockbusters now portray uh, near post-apocalyptic from uh, Hunger Games to uh, Elysium and so on? a new apartheid society and so on. We are moving in that direction. So again, finally to Syriza, but just to introduce it, so what are our problems today? I think worldwide we are confronting three problems, or referring to my book, Trouble in Paradise, the system has now three figures of the enemy, three troubles in our late capitalist paradise. 
First, the renewed fundamentalist terrorist threat, the declaration of war against ISIS, Boko Haram, and so on. I've written enough about it, just I want to I want to advise you just to keep alive your sense of wonder. What, uh, what I find so interesting in a terrifying sense, for example, in Boko Haram, and one really has to analyze it. How could this happen? I don't know. You have Boko Haram, a large movement to change entire society, radical in this formal sense, revolution. But uh, what's their basic axiom of their work? Boko Haram, no false education, meant Western education for women. So isn't this strange that we have a radical movement against the system, the basic premise of which it is that in order to bring about a true just society, the key measure is to keep women at their own place, non-educated and so on. At least this should surprise us. And then from here we should move uh, back to other countries. For example, Russia. I know that the situation in Ukraine is much more complex. There are strong fascists also in the Ukrainian side. But nonetheless, what worries me is that more and more the legitimization of Putin plays on the card of cultural uh, conservatism. You know, or maybe you don't, we have this stupid Eurovision competition in Europe, you know. <laughs> and that the winner two, three years ago was some Austrian guy who is dressed as a girl but has a beard, called, of course, in a vulgar, ironic way, Conchita Wurst, Wurst sausage, and so on. Okay, I mean, I'm here in my private taste, uh, conservative. I didn't like it. But the reaction of Official reaction of Russians shocked me. Even Putin, men of TV, and said, what is this? In the Bible it says there are men and women. What do we get here now? Zirinovsky, the, ra the radical nationalist, went even further and said, in Europe from now on, there are no longer men and women. There is just a monstrous beard that eat, eat. <laughs> now, so what I'm saying is that uh, this is one problem. The second problem is the renewed geopolitical tension. China, especially Russia, and so on, and so on. This is even more dangerous for the system than Boko Haram and ISIS, because Boko Haram and ISIS are out there. I don't still think they present, okay, they can do a new September 11th, and so on, but I don't think they can really substantially destabilize our society. <laughs> With Russia and so on, things are more dangerous, and I'm technically not putting the blame just on the Russian side. What really worries me is this growing rhetoric of world war. You know, all the time media bombard us with, uh, you know, Russia is doing these provocations, then NATO is sending uh, uh, arms to, uh, even units to Baltic countries and so on and so on. I really think, my friend Alain, but you proposed this idea that we are approaching, we, our situation is getting similar to the situation in uh, Europe before World War I. 
we all the time we talk about the threat of a new war, of course, we don't really believe in it. But that's why it can happen. It was exactly the same before World War I. For 20 years they were talking about the danger of the worldwide conflict, but nobody believed it can really happen. And that's why it happened. So it's the end. The third danger, which appears the most modest one, a new radical, new ra the rise of new radical emancipatory movements in Europe. Uh, uh, Syriza in Greece, Podemos in Spain, maybe, let's hope, others. And I think that precisely this third movement, which appears the most modest one, is the only true threat to the system. They will probably find a way, you know, this is for me simple interaction of global powers, or tensions with Russia, it can be managed and so on, but the true threat to the system is this, it's Syriza. Again, uh, the idea that we get from our media, at least in Europe, I don't know how it's here, is that the Syriza government is a bunch of populist extremists who advocate irrational, irresponsible populist measures. I claim nothing can be further from truth. It is, on the contrary, the European Union politics, which was and is obviously irrational. Just to remind you, probably most of you know them, but you know, this has to be repeated. From 2008, Greece had to enact tough austerity measures in order to put its finances in order. Today, seven years later, after the country suffered a terrifying setback, Greek finances are in an even greater disorder, and the debt rose from approximately 120 to approximately 180 billions of euros. And here again, it is Syriza which speaks in a very cold, rational, modest way. Their message to the West, or European Union bureaucracy, is go with us and you will at least get some money back. They are not playing the game of no imperialism, we don't know. They just, where they are critical of the West, are at two modest, really critical of Germany and Brussels bureaucracy, is at two levels. First, that they are cheating, violating their own rules. Namely, and that's also an important general lesson. You know, we talk about austerity, global capitalism, and so on. But global in global capitalism, big powers always cheat. Austerity doesn't hold for them. Look at you, and maybe this was good. How did you half came out, maybe, of the 2008 crisis? Bernanke was printing money like crazy. You were able to do this because dollar was still the universal currency. Or, this is so depressive, it passed unnoticed, but a couple of weeks ago we learned that France is allowed to go much deeper in deficit for next couple of years, well over 3%. You know, like they're putting all pressure on poor Greece, while a bigger country like France is allowed and much wealthier is allowed to violate these rules. Or, what really makes furious my friends in Greece, it is that, okay, in German press you find all the time this ridiculous 
cliche, lazy Greeks just spending, uh, uh, just spending uh, uh, money and so on. And it's true, they, they, by they I mean Syriza, are the first to admit, Tsipras told me this, that he's well aware that the big problem, true problem for Greece is not the West, I mean Germany, it's the overblown, clientelist, corrupted state. But look what happened. That's what makes them furious. Okay, the West criticizes inefficient Greek state, and then whom do they support at the elections? New democracy, which is the party which embodies this clientelist corruption. I mean, so what's going on here? Of course, it's not simply irrational. The fear is that if they allow too much, give too much breathing space to Greece, others will follow, Portugal, Spain, and so on, and so on. Uh, uh, and then, as we all know, the real fear behind all this is that, and here, guys like Maurizio Lazzarato did their work showing that that is today at all levels, from personal to state, is maybe the biggest mode of disciplining and controlling. We live formally in liberal societies, which means more or less, we will see what happens, you cannot impose direct authoritarian discipline. So you need indebted people. That, so they, I claim that this is the, what I call in psychometric terms, superego ambiguity of being in debt. You know, if you are in debt, that you have to organize your whole life towards hard working, paying the debt. It's wonderful disciplining measure. And at the personal level, again, and at the state level, uh, so uh, uh, I don't think that big international powers agents of so-called financial capital, I claim, they don't really want the debt to be repaid. They just want you to feel guilty and slowly, they like to torture you slowly, you know, just to, to repay you, which is why I noticed this, how when I spoke, it involved, it get into a shouting match in Germany and some round tables with people who were against Greece, it took me some time to, to get it that their real reproach was basically, why don't the Greeks feel guilty? Because you know, again, here comes beautifully the true moderation and rationality of Syriza. They are not saying, no, fuck it, imperialism, we will not pay it. They say, yes, we were guilty. Okay, not with the Greek state. But listen, let's talk about it rationally. How can we at least partially repay you? It's obvious the first the economy should start moving and so on, but they do not admit, they don't behave like a guilty party. And that's it's so interesting. That's what really annoys them in the West. Uh, so, uh, next point. Uh, I think that the problem of Syriza is that, I want to use this old term, that we are today under the tremendous pressure of what once we called enemy propaganda. Wait a minute, I'm not ridiculing this term, as you know, in this fascist or Stalinist sense, but Alain Badiou, again, 
wonderfully defined it, quote from Badiou, the goal of all enemy propaganda is not to annihilate an existing force, this can generally be left to police, but rather to annihilate an unnoticed possibility of the situation, end of quote. So, enemy propaganda tries to kill hope. The message is that a resigned conviction that the world we live in, even if not the best of all possible worlds, is at least, uh, is at least the least bad one. So that any radical change can only make it worse. This is true enemy propaganda. It's not this stupid. It's just to convince you nothing can be done. Every change of the system necessarily causes whatever unemployment, uh, catastrophe, and so on. So, how did another thing about Syriza that if you are not, many of you are, but those who are not, that you should be aware of. Syriza is not a simple political party like others. The roots of Syriza are in social movements. Syriza grew out of a long process of grassroots mobilization and self-organization. When it was the main opposition party, Syriza, or rather, movements and groups united in Syriza, organized free medical care by doctors, volunteers, community kitchens, uh, agricultural cooperatives, and so on and so on. The same Podemos also, in probably lower amount, is also doing in Spain. The reason for this is a failed state. You know this famous uh, Pentagon or whatever American definition, rogue state, failed state. Yeah, but the Greece under new democracy was a failed state, effectively. In what sense? When the crisis exploded in 2008, the Greek state was less and less able to perform services like healthcare, support for the unemployed, regular payment of pensions, normal functioning of schools, and so on and so on. And this is what I admire in Syriza. They are, they are not engaged in any of this, you know, pseudo Deleuze or Negri mysticism, self-organization of society against state representation. No, they are well aware this is an act of despair. It's almost, it was a dual power. They had to organize at the local level simply to replace state in performing these elementary services because the way things were going under new democracy. It was so ridiculous, like some friends told me what happens to retired people, and I love it. No, it was horrible what happened, but like all these legal paradoxes explode. For example, a friend of mine had an old father who all of a sudden no longer got a, a, what do call it, pension, retirement. Okay, so he wrote to the ministry and he got an answer that according to their data, he is dead. If he is not dead, could he come there and prove that he is alive? And, you know, and this brings us, I mean, to Kafka, who I think that he was right when he said, Franz Kafka, that in our godless era, uh, state bureaucracy is our last contact with the sacred dimension of divinity. <laughs> Look what happened uh, a couple of years ago to an old lady in France, a friend of mine, who all of a sudden got a message from local city authority that her identity card was 
carte d'identité was stolen and she should go there with the match office to demand a new one. Okay, she went there and said, look, must be a mistake, look, my card still valid and so on. Uh, you don't beat state bureaucracy like that. You know what she was told? She was told that since her card is officially stolen and no longer valid, what he holds held in her hand is an illegal document, so she should immediately tear it up and ask for a new one. If this is not the logic of the sacred and so on, <laughs> then, I, then I don't know. So, okay. Uh, so, what I want to say is that against all this, Syriza, self-organization of the people, was not some stupid leftist, pseudo-leftist even project of, you, you know, rules through the state. No! It, the failed state caused it. It was a desperate self-organization. Syriza is thus not a political party-like organization like others. Syriza is de facto more and more an agent in this, you know, in a, a kind of a global polarization. It reminds me of situation in Chile in the last month of Allende rule, where I spoke with a friend there, not really a friend, Ariel Dorfman, who wrote the drama, and it's interesting, he survived only because he was in the personal entourage of Allende, and just the day before coup d'etat, a friend asked him, could he replace him for that night? Because next day the friend wanted to be free to attain some uh, marriage, I don't know what. So because of this, he survived, his friend died. Because that night, they bombed the palace and so on and so on. So again, uh, uh, the idea was that all of a sudden, it no longer matters which party you are. It was simply reduced to this simple opposition, us against them. But not in some totalitarian way, but quite spontaneously. And that's why I think it's the genius of Syriza, not opportunism, that they formed a coalition with a small conservative party. This party, I talked about it years ago with Tsipras, who told me that there are, among Greek capitalists, some people who can be characterized as patriotic bourgeoisie. Now, some jerks from the left attacked me. Oh, I know from bourgeoisie openly. They even didn't get it that this term that I used ironically, patriotic bourgeoisie, is, if you know anything about Maoism, this is Mao's adopter. You know that people should make tact when necessary with patriotic That is to say, there were some capitalists, especially unexpectedly in shipping business, who were also infuriated and tired of this inefficient uh, state clientelist. It's a madness, not tactically at least, making a pact with them, because are you aware what situation is it with Syriza? Okay, they are still popular, blah, blah. But the propaganda pressure, there is, uh, look, you know that half of the police force, at least it was a year ago, were members or supporters uh, of Golden Dawn. I mean, the true enemy is this immense two million people or how much state apparatus and so on. I mean, 
in such a situation, my God, you make a pact with, with the devil, you know. It's just this basic opposition. And here lies, I claim, the, uh, here lies, I claim, uh, the strength of them. So, what will happen if Syriza government will fail? The consequences will be catastrophic, not only for Greece, but for Europe itself. The eventual defeat of Syriza will add a new way to the pessimist insight that it doesn't work, it, that we should not work within the system. And I think there will be more and more events like European versions of Ferguson or uh, Berlin Cups and so on. It, it means that uh, it means that it will really be a step towards what I call a new apartheid, a new radically divided society of, at all levels. <coughs> or, on one hand, within Europe there will be the true privileged Europe, the big powers, uh, uh, Germany, United Kingdom and so on, versus those who are excluded and so on, and it will be the end of it. As Varoufakis put it in a text, a conference which was published online by The Guardian <laughs> uh, magazine, uh, uh, that uh, we are in a totally crazy, tragic situation where only a radical left can save capitalism from itself. <laughs> and now there is a difficult choice here. Either you say, but why saving it? Let it drop. It looks nice and radical, but you know, this strategy reminds me of the strategy of the Communist Party in Germany in 1933, where you know that the first reaction to the Nazi takeover was joy. Oh, now at least the situation is clear. Us against Nazis. No illusions of, in democracy. We know how cards are. Yes, no illusions. In long term, they were right. But fuck it, I don't want to be right in long term because, you know, in between, before they were proven right, many things happened. Twenty millions of people died and so on. Uh, Jews almost disappeared and so on, you know. So what I'm saying is that uh, what does it mean if Syriza fails I don't know, but it certainly, uh, the alternative, if you don't accept this modest politics of Syriza, it means, it can even mean a new form of authoritarianism, half military dictatorship, and so on, and so on. It's, it's the end. And I think it's worth doing. Precisely, I'm not less radical. Here. I think that precisely what Syriza is doing, of course they are not idiots, as I said apropos Piketty, Piketty sorry, they know very well of all the traps, but you have to go through this process, just to insist, if not again, the, in other words, in a kind of a collective pedagogical process, you have to play this modest game, okay, we want only this, but everyone knows, and that's why all Europe is so furious that 
Only this is not really only this. That's the tragedy of our situation, that if you want only this, a very modest welfare state, it means the end of neoliberal global capitalism in Europe. And who knows what can happen. And this is a dangerous situation, but at the same time a unique chance. Because we can address people not with some crazy demands, you know, like, ooh, global revolution, whatever. We can, you know, since the system is no longer able, at least in Europe, to provide even a well-functioning welfare state. So, you see, all the things which were traditionally, in the period of the Cold War, appropriated by the centrist official politics, are now for us to grab. It's a, it's a situation, again, on the one hand, extremely dangerous, but at the same time, uh, full of hopes. And again, we should be aware of this. It's, to a large extent, ideology, not if these things exist, but I don't think it exists, actual objective economic loss or whatever. It could have been done easily. All that Syriza wants and all. The reason it's not done are strictly uh, ideological. And I think that, again, the price for eventual Syriza's defeat will absolutely not be paid just by Syriza. It will, as Germans know very well, and even as uh, United States know very well from some obscure connections that I have. That's maybe one of the good things that United States diplomacy is doing. They are putting soft, but nonetheless clear pressure on Germany, like, are you aware with what you are playing? You are pushing Greeks towards Putin, you are pushing them to the edge, and uh, I mean, it's madness. It's madness. So, again, uh, it uh, is why I'm saying this? Because it's easy to be, as they put it, anti-Eurocentric. But today, in our concrete situation, to be against Eurocentrism is something very ambiguous. Because uh, insofar as it is identified worldwide as nonetheless European legacy, feminism, radical emancipation, and so on, we should never forget that Euro, against Eurocentrism also can mean, you know, in, uh, democracy is a Western invention. I mean, all, all authoritarian regimes play this anti-Eurocentrist card. Why is this dangerous? Because, as I always repeat, today I claim capitalism in itself is moving in this direction. It needs less and less democracy. And not talking about some authentic workers' democracy, simple bourgeois democracy or what. So, so that, uh, uh, you know, sorry, with this I will conclude, that, you know, Lee Kuan Yew, the founding father of uh, uh, Singapore, who died now a couple of weeks ago. My friend, he's a right-winger, but not stupid, Peter Slotterdijk, you know, I repeat this in two of my books. He uh, said somewhere, if there is a person to whom 100 years from now in future, 
they will be building monuments. A person from our time, it's Lee Kuan Yew. Why? He invented capitalism beyond democracy, authoritarian capitalism. And China followed him. I remember when I was young, when he started his reforms, Deng Xiaoping visited Singapore and said publicly, what you are doing here should be a model for all of us. So again, that's why I'm more gently disposed towards European legacy. You know, it's not just imperialism and so on and so on. That's not threatened. Be, aware, be sure that that part of European legacy will survive. What is threatened is precisely this emancipatory, potentially emancipatory core of Europe. So we should not just feel guilty, we should say it proudly. That's why I like uh, the title of Rena's talk, you know, Attica, New... Uh, new Attica, not only New Attica, it's literally like, if there is anything at all <coughs> worth saving in European legacy, then Syriza is saving it now. If Syriza loses, the ultimate consequence will be that uh, Europe itself will become ultimately just another link in this worldwide chain of, let's call them, authoritarian capitalisms and so on, which is happening in Europe. Look, you have open doubts, for example, in, in Hungary, the movement there, they are now opening, openly claiming there are limits of democracy, making a pact with Putin and so on and so on. This, the things are extremely serious here. So again, with this I will conclude, uh, oh my God, yeah, talk a lot, okay. With this I will conclude just to tell you, don't think it's about Greece, my God. It's not about Greece, it's of world historical significance what is happening here. I'm sorry if I was too long, but on the other hand, fuck you, what could you have done? <laughs> as if we are in a democracy, no? Okay. Although I'm critical towards her, I like Stalinist debates where, you know, you distribute questions in advance and then... Like, I... Sorry? Oh, no, because, you know, that's my favorite, sorry, just it's very brief. I, I met years ago an old Stalinist communist in Slovenia, the Druva, and asked him about how does he feel about this open debate, you know, not like this, non-prepared. Said, yes, people should be allowed to say whatever open, that's very good. But open debates have to be especially well prepared in advance to prevent reactionary provocations. <laughs> Sorry, please. You are there at the Okay, please make them brief so that the other people can talk. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first of all, happy birthday to Jacques Lacan. To whom? Jacques Lacan. When did Lacan, he? Lacan, today is his birthday. Ah, today? Yeah. No, I usually, in my mind, I rather celebrate, wasn't it a week ago or when, when Stalin died, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's drop this. 
thanks for reminding me. Who sent you Jacqueline Miller to pro provoke me here? <laughs> Officer Spirit. Uh, so I have a question when you said symptomatic reading is very important for the political radicalism today. Yeah. Um, this is also in a way going back to um, Althusserian actually, the thinking about radicalization of, of political parties and such. Do you think that this organizational work is also important, organizational work aspect of this? Because with Syriza you said that they grew out of movement but then they were making uh, decisions on the, behind the closed doors like a bunch of experts. So. Um, oh no, but you, up to a point you have, sorry, then you can go on. That's my big point, and that's the most difficult lesson also, Syriza. I hate this uh, uh, molecular left, no representation is bad, just let locally self-organize. No, and that's my biggest news. Even Negri, in a recent interview, he radically shifted his position. Negri said, that first we should be against this uh, horizontalism, there must be hierarchy, decisions, and two, forget about this, who is the guy, Haraway, or how is he called, who goes into this, you know, like, no, you don't have to find the stage, just uh, self-organize locally, no, That's we have to grab power and so on. But I'm saying in terms of uh, pedagogy and militancy and, and uh, this, uh, the potential systematic reading uh, and yeah. engagement on organizational level, what, what do you think can be done in this direction? I only claim that like, we shouldn't be ashamed to brutally grab state power whenever possible and use it fully. I don't buy this bullshit, state power corrupts you, you, you know, as if there is some magic, mimetic logic where if you get state power, you, you become like them, and so on. No, we have to take the risk. Sorry. Please. Um, yes, I'm from the League for the Fourth International and the Internationalist Group in the U.S. Basically, there are two things that you said that I would agree with. One, we live in very dangerous times. And secondly, that the reformism that, uh, that Syriza represents is a utopia. Now, you may have meant that positively. I would say it negatively. I don't think, if you look at what has happened in Europe over the past 10 years, the struggles in France over the pensions, the struggles of the indignados and everything, they have all been defensive struggles to try and preserve the welfare state. There's no reason to believe the welfare state can be preserved. It's not just because they're crazy. The, the capitalist system is bankrupt. They showed it in 2008. The banks today know that very well. That's why they're resisting Syriza. They are not going to give up. And as you said, when, they, when if Syriza falls, there are very big dangers. There's the golden dawn. There's the possibility of a military coup in which the man that they just joined with in that government is the defender of the military, just like Allende appointed Pinochet to be his defense minister. But I would say, having just come from a protest about Ferguson, about Eric Garner, there's a lot of people out there that want to do something about it, but there is no reform solution for them. You will not stop the killing of black and Latino youth okay, in this country. Okay, what's your My point is, why is it crazy to say that you are out there fighting for taking over state power, for a revolution, because I think that is the only real answer to the, the terrible tragedy that the Greek people are being forced to shoulder and that all of us are finding. I, basically, I agree, but again, my God, I think precisely that that's 
beautiful paradox that in today's situation, if there is a just, it is a utopia. But that's why, if you insist on it, you trigger a much larger process. And I find this even uh, uh, pragmatically much more realistic than to say, no, they are reformists, let's wait for the big revolution. Who will do it? Tell me who. Uh, the, the, Greek, the Greek working people, the people who are going through this now, if it doesn't work with Syriza, then what's going to happen? The problem is, the danger is that the fascists will come in then. And if there's no leadership that says we need to take power... I agree with this about leadership, but don't you find this... Uh, so sad that we had financial crisis and so on, everything, but uh, we are all waiting for what you are announcing, people will take over. How? Where? The only realistic path I see is to adopt an apparently modest strategy, but then to really insist on it. Other, I don't... Like, what would you have done now in Greek? Organize workers to take over. How? You will not... Workers control of the factories. It's very concrete. It's very simple. They have a port. They yeah, take it yeah, over. but... Okay, show me one country in which it happened like that. It happened in a lot of places. It happened in Italy after World War I, but they didn't have a party that was trying to take the leadership. And you're going to come to this kind of crisis very soon in Greece, and then it won't work, the bankers won't give it to them, and the question will be, what can working people do? And they have to rely on their own forces, they need a leadership that will lead that kind of a revolution. I think the situation is much more, I would even say, tragic, because, you know, also when you say the people will take over, I'm sorry, but I don't have any model showing to me, okay, the people take it over, what will they do? Nationalize, local self-management, what will they do? This is uh, turning into a debate. What they will do is what the people, the working people there, think they need to do in order to defend themselves. If they don't have pensions, they will organize that. If they don't have work in the factories, they will do it. They can do that by organizing their own economy. You know, Tsipras told me this, and other economists. Now, they claim again, of course, step out of Euro drachma. They know Syriza very well. If Greece does this now, the standard of living will fall at least in the next half a year, minimally between 30 and 60 percent. Absolutely. In that's a country which is already starving. That, you know, that's the tragedy. I mean, I sympathize with you immensely. But, you know, also, when they tell me, step out. Where? Who will help you? Putin, Belarus, who? My God. No, but look, it's For example, they are talking about China. But you must know the story. China bought the port of Piraeus and is doing worse than, sorry for this ironic term, a decent imperial, Western imperialist will do it. They immediately fired half the workers, prevented trade unions and so on. You know, the situation is extremely tragic at this level. What will people do if you, the standard of living falls? I think, and I respect here people, no, I'm not cynical here. Don't, but give, like, I, I even understand ordinary people if the standard of living falls 
Further, then they will say, fuck it, why not a modest military regime if can maybe stabilize the situation and so on. You know, because that's the tragedy of politics. You never get a real support of majority. You can get the support, but never take October Revolution, whatever. It's always a minority. And, uh, and the majority, and I understand them, I don't despise them. I hate these radical people who, and you, you know what does it mean to be an ordinary worker in a country like Greece today? You cannot meet the ends. So how to prevent this terrifying outcome? But where my point is a much worse one for this some years ago when I make a cynical remark, I think. Who was the prime minister before Tsipras? Yeah, I think he attacked me once as time I like this. The secret advisor of Tsipras teaching him how to organize consensus because I make one tasteless remark publicly. It was a backstage joke, you know. I said that if Syriza wins, they should give to all people who voted against Syriza a first-class one-way ticket to Siberia. Okay, okay. <laughs> a stupid remark, but, but no, what I want to say is, would you agree with this or not? Why they have state power, and you're shameless. Try to penetrate secret police and all that. Place your own people there. Be, don't be ashamed of doing this. It may, you're saying why if Syriza should place its own people in power? No, no, I'm saying something much darker. In the most oppressive apparatuses of power, they should do this. Because, my God, you know how, for example, it's so complicated today because of these European financial rules, they are not even able to block the flow of financial capital, no? because European rules are it must be free, floating, and so on, and so on. No, I agree with you. Again, I just am more of a pessimist. I don't see a working force which will enact what you are. The moment you show it to me, I go there. Well, I would say, just very briefly, you see it in the streets of Europe. I was in France in 2010. You had millions in the street. What's happened to working people in Greece is the same thing as in Spain and Portugal and France. That, okay. The answer will but not be in Greece. So It'll be in all Why did then they vote for some new leftist party? That's the problem. You won't do it by a vote. <coughs> I agree with you, but but uh, but what? I mean, I I agree with Alain Badiou that democracy is our fetish in a way, literally. It's the last mask to which obfuscates a clear view of social antagonism. I have no illusions about democracy. I'm just saying that there are such tremendous problems here, you know? I don't like movies like V for Vendetta, where at the end people take over. I would like to see part two of V for Vendetta. Sorry? If they will organize secret police. <laughs> 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 Thank you, but yeah.
So I have one question for you. Uh, when you mentioned the, the form of this oppression, non-intelligible oppression before, like the Taisa, yeah, yeah, and many others, yeah, exactly, many others, like but the Taisa that, that you yeah, yeah. Like, people cannot choose the framework in which they live, their financial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wouldn't you say that anarcho-syndicalism, a form of like localized government, would be a solution to that, but nonetheless would not be the immediate solution, or that that would be the goal? to get to, or would you say that you don't want to get to a type of... To what? To this local? To, uh, yeah, to a no, local... No, no, no. Here I'm for something kind. Full, full rehabilitation of, not the bourgeois state, but something like a strong central power. I'm here very clear. So like Sweden or something like that, like a, a big government... No, I don't like Sweden because I know in detail from Assange and others the story. Sweden is no longer all of Palmer's Sweden. Sweden is now one of the darkest countries. They bullshit about humanitarian aid, but you know that they are the biggest arms exporters per capita, how much they export in the world. There is some, I forgot the name, mega family which owns one third of Sweden, connected with social democratic politics and so on. And they, it's incredible business. They are totally slaves to Americans now and so on and so on. There is, uh, I don't see any, but all I'm saying is this, look, the problems that we are confronting today, from ecology to intellectual property to even biogenetics and so on, these are problems which, okay, it's wonderful when you have all these local communities, blah, blah, but they will demand extremely powerful large-scale collective acts. Who will do that? I am not a sadist who says, okay, we need secret police. No, we need precisely not to do it in the same way that they are doing it. But we need that. We need something beyond all those low... Because, you know, even I had a debate once with Negri in Berlin, where even he, up to a point, had to admit that, you know, even all those multi-boot local self-organization, for them to work, you need an efficient state power. <coughs> which guarantees basic things, functioning, and so on and so on. Let's, I never believed in this idealization. And even now I will go even a step more, which you will find undoubtedly very problematic, but I'm here to provoke you. To say, I'm not even sure that I would like to live in a society, local community where you have to be active all the time. No, I want to live in a society where I can read my fucking uh, books, watch movies and write and uh, somebody else takes care of that. I don't want to be part of community meetings where oh, we distribute get water, where we get electricity. No, I don't want that. I want, now we'll be very brutal, I want a certain basic level of alienation. There is a blind mechanism out there on which I can rely. So, so what, when you mention, like, I, want, I advocate for a central, strong central government, what type of it can you describe what that would look like in your idea, in your mind? Like a strong central government that's not Sweden? No, it's not so much uh, central. Oh, uh, okay, first to make another argument. Precisely the people who celebrate local movements, then usually they say, Look in Venezuela, people. Yeah, yeah, but you had the big fat Chavez, you know. <laughs> a wonderful example of how to move beyond a mere representative democracy and have uh, all these local communities 
it had to be supplemented by a very strong uh, government. How you do it? I don't care how you do it. Just get it done. Uh, but it, it, has, it will have to be done. Things are so serious. Look just at ecological problems. Just uh, uh, my friend Dupuy, uh, the guy who teaches uh, theory of catastrophes, whatever example, told me that, for example, just think about this. You know when Fukushima exploded a couple of years ago? You know that for one or two days, the Japanese government was in such a panic because they thought that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo region. And this is practically, where will they put them? In China, Siberia, what? You see what I mean? This is an extremely large, you cannot say to people there, oh, organize street committees. <laughs> you know, people, I'm just saying, and I, I really even openly ready to concede defeat here and also to you, like, no, I don't have any, an exact formula in this. I'm just saying I see clearly what in some way will have to be done. Or just think about, my God, uh, I'm so interested in biogenetics. Who will control this? I spoke with a friend of mine recently whose friend works in where things really happen, these secret laboratories which are all patent controlled by the army, you know, how to... Uh, uh, I mean, that's the new form of warfare. They already have many things. For example, they already have some radiations, like, if you annoy me, I just press the button, radiations, you are, for one to two hours, your memory is totally erased, you don't know who you are, what you are doing, and so on. And nothing happens in reality. Who will control all this? Are, and all states are doing this. I'm not just blaming the United States. Are we aware what, again, who, how will control this? Unfortunately, not local communities, you know. Okay. That's all I'm saying. Well, just one more, okay? I'm sorry because I hear Thank you so much. Um, I want to return to your final point about being um, worth saving in European capitalism is liberal democracy. And on that question, um, I'd like to hear what you have to say about the morality of nonviolence. Here, oh my God, you touched an even more. First, I don't think European capitalism is worth saving. But I think that I was much more refined that by strategically pretending to be for the welfare state, it's to trigger a process, it's a realist, you know, I was more dirty and manipulative here, it's to trigger a process which will in the long term, in a way, acceptable to people, problematize capitalism. But when you said about non-violence, violence, yeah, this brought me a lot of trouble, because of course I'm not for violence. And then people attack me when I said, in some countries, even my book was censored, when I said, I know it was a heavy provocation, when I wrote that uh, the problem with Hitler was that he wasn't violent enough, no? But then I added, violent in the sense that Gandhi was more violent than Hitler. Because I, again, I think that Hitler's violence was purely reactive. He killed millions so that nothing will change. So that the system basically remains what it is. So my point here is just double or triple. First, there is what in my book I describe as objective violence. Violence of social processes and 
I don't propose to use this as some totalitarian excuse, you know, if I'm a victim of objective violence, then I can react to it by subjective violence, kill people and so on. But we have to take this into account in what sense? You know, people usually, that's my second point, people usually identify violence with change. But what about an incredible amount of violence today in the world, which has to be mobilized all the time just so that things can go on the way they are? Like, my prop, uh, uh, to take a ridiculous case, but it's not ridiculous, it's mega tragic. Congo, the state which is really a rogue state, non-functioning, extreme crazy things happen. Even a uh, 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 cover story of Time magazine showed a couple of years ago that like five, six millions died there, unnatural. And, uh, but, you know, it's not in the media, it's ignored. It doesn't, although, I, as I told to my Palestinian friends of the West Bank, no, just don't be too sure that you are the symbol of suffering. Are you aware that an ordinary Congo farmer would, I put it in these terms, would sell his mother into slavery to be able to move to West Bank even? It's absolute nightmare, violence, but it's not violence outside. As such, Congo is fully integrated into global capitalism because all those local warlords are, I don't know the names, you don't know the names, I'm stupid. Some metals which are crucial for computers and so on. Coltan. Yeah, 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 and all that. You see, uh, this is for me the first step when we debate violence. Don't just step out of this frame, oh, change, but will it be violent? Yeah, but take into account the tremendous amount of violence that is going on now. For example, here I self-critically admit, when I quoted some sources, suspicious, how many people died in, in the Great Leap Forward, yes, you can show that in India, <laughs> under British colonization, there were mass starvations, hungers, millions died, but you know, it doesn't get into the media, how should I put it? Take India, for example. Do you see the Chitty movie? But it's maybe not so totally bad. Uh, um, some yeah, you remember at the very beginning when the guy who is just accused of, of cheating a little bit in some stupid TV show, he is automatically tortured. And I asked my friends in India, they told me, of course, if you are not rich, everyone is tortured, regularly. You don't find in India, if you are poor or whatever, if you are a And it simply, you know, like, we, you don't read about this in our media because, you know, India is, as they like to say, the greatest thriving, the greatest democracy and so on. You know what my Indian friends did? It's wonderful irony. They organized Arundhati Roy and others. They organized a petition asking India police to treat prisoners at least the way Chinese treat Tibetans. <laughs> you know, because uh, Tibet, why? Because in Tibet, at least, they torture you only if you are accused of political links with Dalai Lama. They don't torture you for ordinary small petty crimes, you know. So don't you agree that the first step in seriously debating violence is to just 
become aware of violence which is here goes on all the time, extremely brutal violence. And I must admit it that at some point this also makes me a little bit more open. Yes, I'm sorry. Sometimes you have to be violent to stop this violence. And I, I don't have any problems with this. Thank you. Sorry, but I have to run now. I'm so sorry. <laughs>